0: Hi, this is your host, Becky Sanders. Welcome to A Virtual View, where we discuss healthcare, telehealth, and everything in between. Today, our guest is Josh Cullison, Medical Director of Rural Health Clinics for Greene County General Hospital in Linton, Indiana. Linton, Indiana is located in Greene County, Indiana, which is in the southeastern part of Indiana, and the county has a population of about 35,000. Linton itself has a population of around 5,400. So, Josh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the four clinics that you're a medical director for?
1: Yeah, um, thanks for the introduction. I've been the medical director here for about the past year and a half. I originally, you know, grew up here in Bloomfield in Green County. Did undergrad at IU Bloomington and then went on to a medical training at the Terre Haute campus of Indiana University School of Medicine. Our rural health clinics, we have four spread throughout our county, which is one of the largest as far as land area in Indiana. We have, like I said, four rural health clinics, one in in Linton, one here in Bloomfield, where I am right now, one in Westgate, which is near the Crane Naval Base, and another one in Worthington, Indiana.
0: So the Westgate clinic near the Crane Naval base, I'm assuming that the majority of your patients are actually employees of the Naval base.
1: We get a lot of Crane Navy employees, Navy and Army. We also draw a fair amount of peoples from a neighboring county, Davies County. We kind of sit right on the county line between Greene County and Davies County. So we do pull some people from Odin, Indiana, Washington, Indiana some of those smaller rural communities in Davies County as well.
0: And what about the other campuses?
1: So Bloomfield, which is where I primarily practice, I also practice at the Westgate Clinic or Bloomfield Clinic. I mean, primarily we're pulling patients from, from Bloomfield, Linton, Eastern Green, which is closer to Monroe, Bloomington, to be honest, I even have patients coming from Bloomington, which is about 30, 45 minutes away, that, that come see me because they, they can't get in to see a primary care doctor for months, especially if they're a new patient. Uh, I have patients coming in from far as ways as Martinsville, Bloomington, just because we have access to the primary care here. Wow, uh, that's awesome.
0: I was looking yeah. at the map and, and the census data, and all the census data for all of your clinics says that they're part of the metropolitan statistical area for Bloomington, mm-hmm. but- I was surprised because, like, as you mentioned, that's about the 30-minute drive, and Martinsville is even another 15 minutes north or so of Bloomington.
1: Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, like I say, you know, County is a fairly large county, so once you get to the eastern part of the county, you're really... Closer to Bloomington than you are to the county seat here in in Bluefield, and and Linton is our largest city here in in Green County. So it makes sense for a lot of people to get their services in Bloomington, even though they might live in, you know, Green County.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, did you guys do any telehealth prior to the COVID pandemic?
1: So we did on a limited basis, I can talk a little bit more about that when we get into some of the services we offer, but we did have a school-based telehealth program that we were getting off the ground prior to COVID. But as far as office-based telehealth, no, and, and the main reason is because Medicare said we couldn't, um, there, were, there were rules <laughs> that said we could not be a distant site, as you probably know. So that changed with COVID. So prior to COVID, no, we could not deliver telehealth services practically as a rural health clinic.
0: That's right. So for our listeners, Medicare rules say that a rural health clinic can only be what's called the originating site, which is where the patient is located for a telehealth visit prior to COVID. And during the pandemic and as it has gone on for the last almost 14 months now, Medicare did change those rules, allowing rural health clinics and fairly qualified health centers to also be the distance site or where the practitioner is located. So that was a huge blessing for you guys to be able yes. to keep in contact with your patients.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Let's go back and talk about your undergrad program and then your medical program. The medical program where you got your MD at Indiana State University's campus is actually an IU School of Medicine program, correct? It is,
1: yeah. IU School of Medicine has campuses throughout the state, called satellite campuses. Of course, the main campus is in Indianapolis, but they have campuses in South Bend, Lafayette, Gary, uh, Bloomington, Terre Haute, and Evansville. And so traditionally, students would be assigned to a satellite campus. There's about half of the 350 um, students per year staying in Annapolis. And the other half are kind of sprinkled throughout the state at various campuses. Traditionally, the students would complete their first two years of book work at a, a satellite campus. And then for the last two years, the third and fourth years of medical school, a go to Indianapolis into your clinical rotations. Starting in 2008, IE School of Medicine created a rural medical education program that was based on the ISU campus. And so it is Indiana University campus, but it's housed on the ISU campus in, in Terre Haute. So, that program allowed students to you know, spend their first two years in Terre Haute, but they also the additional two years instead of going to Indianapolis. We trained in Terre Haute and the surrounding rural communities, focusing more on primary care and in preparation for going out into real practice in a rural area.
0: That's awesome. Very much a grow your own as far as it comes to rural
1: that was the idea because it can be very difficult to get doctors into rural areas, uh, especially if you're not born and raised in the area. So I think it's been successful at getting some doctors like myself here back in our hometown.
0: Yeah. Now, you were part of that very first graduating class out yes. of the rural medicine program, correct? I was, yes. Have you kept in touch with others from your class?
1: I have, you know, it's easy with social media and, and Facebook to, to, to see each other and to stay in contact. I've also stayed in contact with my professors and then the program up there in Terre Haute. I accept two or three students a year from the program up there to do their third year family medicine rotation. So I'm, I'm an adjunct faculty for the School of Medicine as an assistant clinical professor. So I'd like to keep in contact with the medical school to do some teaching. And it's just a good way to you know stay in touch with the university and to um, stay in contact with the students. It's really rewarding.
0: Very good. Your class, the first class that graduated out of the program, were there, I'm trying to remember, eight or 12 students? There were eight of us. Eight? mm -hmm. Yes. And do you know how many the school is graduating each year now?
1: So I think there's 20, I think there's 24 students on the, uh, the campus. I think the last time I checked about uh, I'm going to give an estimate here. I think about 16 of them were rule track students. So we've gone from eight out of 24 to now more than half of the students are in the rule track.
0: That's great. Yeah. And do you have any statistics or know from at least your graduating class, how many have gone on and focused their practices in rural?
1: Yeah. So I think from my understanding about... Five out of eight of us are in rural practice, and most are in primary care, family medicine or pediatrics. We did have a few people branch off and, and do some specialties, but.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how telehealth has helped your practice, especially with the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think primarily, I mean, it's it's made e- easier for some patients to continue to access me you know the primary care doctor during the pandemic a lot of people justifiably were reluctant to you know come in to see the doctor they were staying home they didn't want to come to the doctor and see sick people especially early on in the pandemic we saw the, our number of daily visits like right, drastically take a hit I mean we were down to probably 30 or 40 percent of our normal volume. And as you can imagine, that really hurt our revenue flow. And we had to come up with some ideas like how do we get people in the door? How do we access people so we can deliver care and keep our doors open? And, and telehealth was a way to do that. You know, additionally, you know, I've had some patients, you know, as patients sometimes do, they come in navigator practice by moving to different towns or things like that. I've been able to Keep some patients that have moved as you know far away as Indianapolis, Lafayette, who they still want me to be the doctor, and I'm able to do that, even though that it might be a couple hours away from me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So now we have that opportunity.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that at the beginning of the pandemic, Green County Hospital was involved in some school telehealth programs. Yeah. What school system was that with?
1: So we initially started out in, I think it was 2008. Nineteen. We started out with White River Valley Elementary School, which is located in Worthington, Indiana. It was a pretty big success. And you know, word quickly spread throughout the community, we had a lot of positive reaction. And then within one school year, we had all four of our school districts in our county signed up, and by the end, we covered all seven schools, elementary, um, high schools, in our, in our county. So by the end of 2019, every single school in Greene County had a telehealth platform and it actually expanded into a neighboring county, Owen County. In late 2019 and early 2020, we partnered with two schools in Owen County. And so that brings our total to nine schools that we can provide telehealth services for.
0: That's great. Now, when the shutdown happened in early 2020 with the COVID 19 pandemic and all the kiddos switched to online school or e learning, what happened with that telehealth equipment?
1: So, a lot of the telehealth equipment was distributed to our local nursing homes. And this was a way for doctors to access the patients, uh, for the patients to access their doctor, because the nursing homes, as you Probably no, they were on lockdown, and so a lot of that telehealth equipment got distributed to other care facilities within our community, and so it still got put to use. Our school telehealth program essentially kind of came to a halt after essentially March 2020 when the pandemic hit. You know, the, the schools were out. One of those practical things to use telehealth equipment in the schools for is like, you know, colds, flu symptoms, sore throats we were having the school nurses do flu and strep swabs. Well, after pandemic hit, we decided well, we couldn't really safely do flu and strep swabs and anything that kind of might have been COVID symptoms. They really needed to get tested for COVID. So that really put a damper, so to speak, on our school health telehealth program.
0: Mm-hmm. In Greene County, what's the status of the schools now? Are the kids back in the classroom?
1: It's kind of a mix. Students have an option to do in-school learning. Some of my patients are still electing to do online learning. So there's an option for both. I'd say most kids are back in school now, but there are some parents, especially if they have like an elderly or an immunocompromised person in the home, a lot of those parents are keeping their kids at home and doing the, the virtual learning. hmm
0: yeah yeah that's one of the things that has been so crazy about this pandemic is my husband and i live in our home with our two daughters Mm -hmm. one of our daughters has type 1 diabetes and part of the time my husband's mother comes and stays with us and she is in her late 70s and also immunocompromised so for those first few months we were very isolated in our home and just didn't venture out except to get groceries
1: yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I, I, I hear that story a lot. And mm-hmm. so it's a tough decision whether to send your kids back. And, you, you know, as a family doctor, you just try to support, the, you just try to support the parents' decision because I, I hear you, it is a hard decision whether to send your kid back into the schools or keep them at home.
0: Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, as a parent, our kids don't come with guidelines. They don't come with books to tell us yeah. what's, <laughs> how to solve certain situations. Yeah, right. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. Yeah. So what do you see as limitations to telehealth?
1: I think the major limitation in our area is the technology piece, especially for our elderly patients. Being in a rural area, there's still many areas that we don't have high quality broadband internet access, which is really essential to delivering good telehealth. You have to have a good connection to have a really quality visit, both audio and visual. And many of our elderly patients may not have access to a computer, or maybe they don't feel comfortable using one, or some of my patients don't even have email. They've they never had an email address. And like the way our telehealth platform works, we we send you a link via email. if you don't have an email, you can't get the link. Or some of our patients don't have a smartphone. And So, you know, those are those are limitations from a technology standpoint, from a clinical perspective. I think one of the major limitations is the inability to perform a thorough physical exam or do like point of care testing, for example, like flu testing, strep throat testing, you know, for example, how do you, you know, how do you diagnose strep throat if you can't see inside the patient's throat or Mm -hmm. do a, do a strep test? It's very, very difficult.
0: Right.
1: And as, You know, as clinicians, we're told to examine the patient, look at the patient, put your hands on the patient, listen to them, listen to the heart, lungs. And so that was a major hurdle, even from a psychological standpoint. That was one of my reluctance to implement telehealth. It's like, well, how can we deliver good care if we can't touch and see the patient? You know, like there's ways you can do it. And uh, it just takes a little bit different approach. And just even things like gathering vital signs, like, That's a very basic thing. Blood pressure, pulse ox, pulse, respiratory rate, things like that. You know, some of our patients have access to a blood pressure cuff at home and they have a pulse ox and they can give us their vital signs. And that's great, but a lot of patients don't. So I I see those as kind of the major limitations to Mm
0: -hmm. telehealth. Yeah. Absolutely. So what kind of visits work best for telehealth?
1: For me, I think the best visits that, that work from a a practical standpoint are those follow-up visits for depression and anxiety because the physical exam like for you know assessing someone for depression and anxiety like you don't have to listen to their heart and lungs you just have to listen you have to observe how their facial expressions how they're speaking what they're saying so you you don't need an in-person visit for that essentially it's just observing the patient For example, my my wife is a psychologist, and so she does therapy and counseling, and during the pandemic, she transitioned to a completely telehealth practice, and it's worked great. She she has a thriving practice of just telehealth, and for me, I think mental health services probably work the best, and and we've been doing mental health services. Our local community health center, the Hamilton Center, they've been doing tele-mental health services for years. So... Patients are pretty used to connecting with a psychiatrist or a psychologist virtually. I think mental health follow-up visits, I think work well. I've even had success doing home health face-to-face visits for elderly patients. You know, elderly patients get out of the nursing home, they get out of the hospital, they need home health services, which requires a face-to-face visit. That can be very difficult if, you know, they're frail, it's during a pandemic, they might not want to come to the office. A lot of times during those visits, to be honest, we're just reconciling medications. We're gathering history, of what happened between the last time I saw them, what kind of services they might need, making referrals, ordering durable medical equipment. So, those types of visits work pretty well, I think, for, for telehealth.
0: Mm-hmm. For those patients that you refer to the Hamilton Center or another community mental health center for behavioral health services, prior to the pandemic, did those occur in your office?
1: No. The Hamilton Center is, they have their own freestanding clinic. It's probably like a quarter of a mile down the road from us, but they do have their own facility.
0: Okay. Cool. You mentioned that some of your patients have moved out of the general Greene County area uh, and moved further up state mm-hmm. uh, so has the ability to do telehealth with them from their home or their apartment ha- has that helped you to stay in touch with those patients Yeah,
1: absolutely. I the example of a patient of mine I had been seeing for a couple of years now. We have a very uh, established relationship you know i'm treating her for depression and bipolar anxiety and for a lot of i mean not only for patients who suffer from depression anxiety for many of us like establishing with a new doctor can be very anxiety provoking it's trusting someone with your care and, and having to go through all that history again and trying to it's it's difficult for patients i understand that and several patients have you know approached me like hey i'm moving can I still keep you as my doctor? And and I still like to see my patients in person once a year, but for follow-up visits, it's like, sure, we can keep in touch via telehealth and I think we can make this work. So yeah, those patients probably have to find a new primary care doctor in a new city. And so I think it's comforting for our patients. I have several cases like that where they could keep me as a primary doctor and it works well.
0: With telehealth, have you had any patients that have moved outside of the state? And if yes, has that caused you to think about licensure in other states?
1: Yeah, so that is kind of a sticky issue. I have had a couple of people move out of state or or maybe they're on vacation or they're, they're visiting a sick relative for a couple of weeks and they need to see me. And so every state is different about their licensing requirements. And so... I was actually just looking this up today because I had a patient who is mentally challenged. He's living with his brother in Kentucky, and they needed to have a face-to-face to to get some services and a letter for their insurance. And they asked me if I could see them in Kentucky. So I had to access the rules. And and, and thankfully, by some of these emergency proclamations that states have, have issued, I can do that. Now, once this public health emergency ends, a lot of that might go away. And so that, that might not be feasible in, in, in the future
0: mm-hmm. to,
1: to continue to see those patients out of state. Mm-hmm.
0: So before we talk about the future of telehealth, once the pandemic ends, let's talk a little bit about technologies. What technologies yeah. have you guys found are best suited for your clinics and for Green County hospital?
1: So, I think the most common technology we're using is a HIPAA compliant audiovisual platform. So, that's important, a HIPAA compliant. So, doing FaceTime or video chat on your phone, that's not HIPAA compliant. So, it's not generally recommended, but the platform that we're using is actually built into our EMR. So, how that Works it says the patient schedules a telehealth appointment they get an email link sent to their email and then at the time of their appointment they click on the link and then i actually go into the patient's chart just like i would if they were in my office i would go into their chart open up the visit there's a little you know button in the right hand corner that says start telehealth visit and i'm connected with the patient and we have an audio and visual connection that that's the 90, 95% of our our visits are are like that. Other types of visits are possible. You can do audio only visits. You know, that's possible. I I think it's less desirable. You don't get to see the patient. You can only talk over the phone. These visits are generally coded differently and they're generally reimbursed at much lower levels. So I I tend to really encourage the visual portion of, of that. You know, the the audio portion, if you're only going to do an audio-only visit, it does require a minimum of five minutes of medical discussion. I have some patients who are really savvy with our patient portal and and really like to use the patient portal to ask me questions and send me stuff. So there's a technology called store and forward. So you can send, um, say if you have a rash, you can take a picture of your rash or maybe a mole or whatever. You can upload that to your portal and say, hey, doc, uh, what do you think of this rash? So I can see that it comes into my in bucket. I can see the picture. I can respond to the patient and tell them, hey, it's nothing to worry about. Hey, it looks like you might need some cream. I'll send you in a prescription. There's actually a way you can bill for those services. Physicians and clinics, they can get reimbursed for some of these virtual visits using the portal, communicating with the patients like that. And the last thing I wanted to touch on, which we touched on a little bit when we talked about the school-based telehealth. So we were lucky enough to get a grant through the Indiana Rural Health Association to get telehealth platforms to put into our schools. And these are just fantastic devices. They, they came with cameras. They had stethoscopes that you could, like, hook up to the computer. They had otoscopes you could look in ears, eyes. And so what would happen during the school telehealth visits is that the student would go to the school nurse, the school nurse would get all their vitals, and I would be on the other end kind of directing the school nurse, like, what to do. Be like, okay, I wanna to listen to their heart and chest, so move the stethoscope around. Hey, can you look in their ear for me? And she would get the otoscope out and look in their ear, and the camera's attached to the otoscope, so I can actually see inside their ear, I can see inside their mouth. which is really, really nifty technology. Th- those are probably the highest quality telehealth visits I've done. Because, I mean, obviously most patients don't have those platforms in their home, right? It's not practical, but when we make a, a telehealth hub, so to speak, in the schools, you can have all these nifty attachments that you can listen to heart, lungs, uh, you know, visualize throat, eyes, ears. Yeah. So that, that's another technology. I guess that still uses the audiovisual basis, but it's just, it's just enhanced with the,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the technology that we had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have you had any patients that have been able to purchase any equipment at home, like I don't know, digital scales or Bluetooth devices to help provide quality vitals for you?
1: I think not really. I mean, the the most common thing I've seen more patients get is is a blood pressure cuffs at home, just so we can take blood pressure cuffs and pulse ox machines. Mm Those are probably the most affordable things for my patients to obtain, and you can get those things over the calendar without a prescription, so pretty basic stuff, but that's about what we're working with. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, as we start to close, let's talk a little bit about the future of telehealth as the pandemic and so many of those orders and executive orders and bulletins and mm-hmm. proclamations start to sunset. Have you followed any of the legislative bills in Indiana or at the federal level around that? I have.
1: It's been, it's been a couple of months since I've I looked at where the status of the bill is. Do you have any insight on that?
0: Sure. There is one bill that looks like it's going to pass in the state of Indiana to keep the originating site information the same, you know, so the patient can be at home. And I think that's one of the biggest barriers What we don't know is what's Medicare going to do with that at the national level. And there's a a lot of different bills. In the show notes, we'll put some links to different bills for the state of Indiana and some GovTrack stuff for the federal Congress. But I think the future is bright. So many patients and providers like Mm -hmm. yourself have... Seen over this past year, how vital it is and how helpful it is, especially for patients who are immunocompromised or frail and have transportation issues, to be able to stay in touch with their providers from their home location. I don't think there's any way that we can go back.
1: I agree. I think telehealth services have been a little slow to catch on. I mean, we've we've had we've had telehealth services for a while. Like I was alluding to. You know, our, our community mental health center has been doing it for, for years. It's been kind of slow to catch on at doctor's offices. And I think the pandemic just kind of accelerated what was already probably going to happen eventually. Things are slow to change in medicine. We don't like change. <laughs> um, so the wheels have change turn very slowly. And perhaps one of the good things that came out of this pandemic is it did accelerate some of those changes as far as virtual visits and, and telehealth. And it, it caused the government to really take a hard look at like, why can't rural health clinics deliver telehealth services? It was kind of a silly law. It's like, uh, you think. Rural health clinics would be a place that would really benefit from using telehealth services. So I hope those changes stick. I'd hate to have it go back to where our patients can't take advantage of those services.
0: Mm -hmm yeah well and it's it's interesting that the indiana medicaid program already allowed rural health clinics and federal qualified health centers to be both the distant and the originating site but i think it might have just been an older law at the federal level for medicare that just hadn't been updated yet because nobody thought to look into it and ask
1: yeah yeah I, i'm optimistic as well i mean medicare is already They've changed how much they're going to reimburse us for telehealth visits. They've gone back and forth several times during the pandemic, but they seem to settle on kind of a flat rate that they're going to reimburse us for telehealth visits. I think currently it's $99.45. So I think the fact that Medicare has kind of set a fee schedule bodes well that they're going to allow us to continue to do this at RHCs and FQHCs. Yeah.
0: I agree. Well, I want to thank you, Josh, so much for spending some time with us today. I hope that our listeners enjoy listening to this conversation. I I certainly have learned a lot and I appreciate all that you do to support your area of rural, your local community.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoyed myself.
0: So for our listeners, thank you for listening to A Virtual View. I've been your host, Becky Sanders. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you'd like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us at info at or through the form found in the show notes below. Thanks so much for being with us today.